The scripture reading this morning is from John 9, 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked, again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. 
Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. This week, Kathy and I were driving up from Washington, D.C., a trip I've taken enough that I know that it's a simple trip, straight down uh, one highway. And so I had in my mind, having gone down, that you get on the New Jersey Turnpike 95, got to D.C., that on the way back, uh, it's one highway. And so I put in on my phone, on the GPS, the route in case there was traffic. Sometimes it's helpful to get some alerts. But in order to save battery, I turned the screen off and uh, just assumed I would just keep going straight. And, you know, the, the GPS, it gives you a lot of irrelevant information about, you know, uh, different things that you don't really need to know any, any uh, time there's a turnoff that you're not planning on taking. So I heard the GPS say something, but I was in the middle of conversation uh, that I didn't pay attention to it. And uh, it was alerting me to the fact that actually, uh, when you're in Delaware, 95 will take you to Philadelphia, not straight into New Jersey. So you need to stay on a certain highway and then get back to 95. I didn't know that, wasn't thinking about it, so I didn't listen to what the GPS said. And the GPS should have alerted me to look for the signs and the signs were there, but thinking I didn't need to pay attention, I didn't pay attention. So uh, fortunately, uh, Kathy said, I think you're supposed to be in the right lane and, and go uh, to the right, which was confusing to me, aren't we just going straight? Well, I was wrong. I had some assumption there, and because I wasn't listening, because I wasn't watching, I nearly got us lost. <clears throat> now, Christians are one of the people of the book groups. We, we have the Bible, the Word of God. We're supposed to listen to what God has to say, but as God is giving us whatever he's giving us, show, showing us himself, giving us, uh, forming us, giving us direction, we're meant to be going out into the world with our eyes open and paying attention and, and listening to what's being said and having that guide and direct our choices. But sometimes God is also showing us things. We need to see things. And there are times that God is trying to get us to see things and we're not looking. And there are times that maybe we should just be looking uh, for something that maybe the Bible hasn't explicitly spoken to, but um, we're not paying attention. And so the Bible tells a story of human beings that don't listen well, that aren't watching, that don't see well, and wind up lost, wind up in darkness, various images. Um, John writes this gospel saying that, that God wants to show us things. And at the end of the, the gospel, John says, Jesus did many things, many things, but these were written so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life. And so he records seven particular signs for us, saying Jesus did lots of things, but these signs tell a story of something that God is wanting to show you. And so the sixth sign that we're looking at today is Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. And, you know, if you just step back and say, what do these signs show us? It shows us this amazing power of Jesus, and maybe you would be impressed by that or whatever conclusions you would draw. But John seems to be wanting to tell us in the details or show us more particular things. And so here's this person who is born blind, but the conversation comes about seeing and knowing. And at the end, Jesus in the last verses, verses 39 and 40, uh, has a challenge for his critics, which is to say that you think that you can see, but, but it doesn't look like you can. 
And so, so John tells this event of what Jesus did in one individual's life that surely shows us the compassion of Jesus, the wisdom, the power, all of these things. But, but John presents it so it puts a question back on us. Can you see? Are you listening? Um, or are you wandering in the dark? Are you lost? And so what is it John wants to draw our attention to so that we would see that would give us life? I'm going to highlight three things today from this passage uh, that John wants us to see. What is it that God would have us see through this healing action? First thing is God wants us to have better ways of viewing the world. So we should be seeing differently so we could have better ways of viewing the world. So it's clear in this passage there's a seeing problem. The, the, the word see appears, I think, nine times. And so it's not just one person who is unable to see, but, but this is exposing a spiritual reality, that there's so much that we don't see. But there's another theme here connected to seeing, which is knowing. And that word knowing also comes up a lot, but even where it's not explicit, you can see part of what's going on here is human beings trying to make sense of their world and what's happening in the world, and nobody understands everything, and therefore people are drawing wrong conclusions, some of the conclusions in this particular passage, problematic and harmful. So, so the, the conversation begins with a question from Jesus' disciples. So they call him rabbi, which means teacher, which means their posture towards him is, you know things we don't know. So they come to him with a question of something they can't make sense of. So in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, the man who Jesus heals, the blind man, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And so there's a genuine learning opportunity. We want to understand what happened. We can't make sense of this. Why is this guy suffering this way? But in it, these disciples have already learned, and they're doing what we do, is you take what you've learned and you piece it together and you try to make sense of things. And so they would have had some good frameworks in their mind. They would have uh, certainly should have observed cause and effect in the world, actions and consequences. And so things happen, and therefore there's often a reason behind what happens. And so if you assume that, if this person is blind, there must be a purpose. There must be a cause that's discernible. And so that's not a bad assumption on its own. Uh, these would be people who had read the Bible, and the Bible talks about sin and the problem in the world. So clearly sin is somehow an issue in the, in the world being broken. And so they're piecing all these things together and whatever various other things that they had learned through life, and they're looking at a situation of something that they can't quite make sense of. This is, this is something that we don't really understand. So we're using the categories we have, which is sin is what, what has caused everything to, to unravel. Um, uh, actions have consequences. So what caused this particular consequence? Why did this man, the language is not there, deserve to be blind? Because in a just world, if he didn't deserve it, well, that's even more troubling. And so here they're ans asking a sincere question that Jesus clearly needs to reframe because uh, maybe some of the building blocks are right, but their conclusion is fundamentally wrong. Jesus sees it very differently. It is not that this man sinned or 
that his parents sinned. Would Jesus say it's not that sin wasn't part of it? Well, that's the broader Christian theology of, of turning from God and the world unraveling. Surely Jesus knows cause and effect and the nature of sin, but he's looking at this individual and saying you are drawing the wrong conclusion and their assumption is a problematic one, but that becomes the assumption as we go through. So his disciples are kind of open to learning. But then as the questions go around, we find that these themes of what we know and what we don't know keep coming up. And I'm not going to cite all the examples, but, but the religious leaders are quite troubled by what happened. And it's not that they're not rejoicing that a blind person can see, but Jesus chose to do this in the Sabbath. And that creates now, again, how do the categories work together? It's wonderful. We're really happy for the guy, but the Sabbath has been broken. This guy's having influence. And so they have these pieces and how are they going to put them together? They're going to put them together in a way that's meant to condemn Jesus. And that's Part of what Jesus is showing is the problem with how we fill in the gaps with what we don't know. So they go to the parents of the man and they ask him, uh, is this your son? And how is it that he now sees? And so the parents answer in verses 20 and 21, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So there's a confident knowing. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. And one of the dynamics in this passage is there's a little bit of fear. So it's hard to know what the parents actually think and know. They're willing to own, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind. But there's a vulnerability of sharing what we think about happened. And so we're just going to play it agnostic. We don't know the rest. Um, the religious leaders wind up talking about things that they know, but also expose things that they don't know that tie into some of the broader conversations we've been looking at uh, since John 1. In verse 29, as they're being challenged to give an answer, um, they say, we know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And Jesus keeps having that conversation with them. If you haven't read John, start from the beginning. And every now and then that comes up that Jesus has this radical claim that, that he came from the Father. He was before Abraham. He was before us. These various claims in John. And, and they're kind of looking literally at you're a human being and we're studying the scriptures to see if your human story matches the fulfillment of the scriptures. And of course it ultimately does because Jesus is bringing all things together. But I'm very sympathetic. If I was there trying to say, wait, he's born in Galilee and we were expecting the Messiah to come from uh, the, the region of Judah. It's understandable why they were confused. But in their confusion, Jesus keeps saying is, uh, you do not know where I'm from because you do not know my father. And so if you recognize the voice of the Father in the scriptures that you're studying, you would recognize his voice in me, and therefore you'd be willing to see. So when they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, that's a good affirmation. That's a true statement. God did speak to Moses. It's good that they know that. The thing is, they know that God has spoken to Moses, but they don't seem to know the God who spoke to Moses. And what Jesus is saying is, therefore, you're misunderstanding the law. And the evidence is when I come to fulfill it, rather than recognizing and rejoicing, you're opposing me. So there's a kind of blindness that they're not seeing, they're hearing, but they're hearing in a confused way. 
And the kind of question that comes up here is, is the kind of question that we ask often. I mean, this is the story of the foundation of Buddhism, of a guy who grew up in privilege, and then he looks out and he realizes there's suffering in the world. Any compassionate human being is going to face some injustice or some suffering or something that makes them say, how does this all fit together? How, how is the story of humanity in, the, in this world not overwhelmingly awful? And so the biggest sort of philosophical problem that, that people who believe in God have had to try to speak for in the last you know, 100 or 200 years is what we call the problem of evil. If there is a God who is good, and if that God is powerful, well, then how do we explain evil in the world? It's kind of an installment here. How do we explain that this person was born blind? And, and the, the problem of evil for philosophers is a really difficult problem, and we need very bright people to sort of work through and think through the implications. But, but practically, what's often going on in our hearts when we're grappling with that question of saying, I want to know why, is not because I have an unsatisfied mind, but I have a troubled soul. And we tend to think answering why will calm me down as if what we need is information when we're facing suffering and injustice. And, and there's a sense here where, where we always have to grapple with what we don't know. If we believe that God is all-knowing, well, then we ultimately uh, have to be disciples. We have to learn from him. And so often in bundled underneath the question of why is this bad thing happening uh, or how can God still be good is not the question, how does the world make sense? But there is something in us that is fundamentally asking the question, is it okay for me to hate God? Because when there's suffering and injustice, the normal response is anger, along with confusion and whatever else. And anger needs to go somewhere. Who should I be angry at? And we're wanting to say, if God is good and if God is powerful, then this gives me the, the liberty to be angry at him because he could do something, he should do something. And of course, it assumes that we know what God does not. And so we're in a precarious place when we're thinking that. But some people feel the freedom in atheism to say, I'm just gonna be honest that the God as I perceive is not worth serving and knowing, so I'm just gonna boldly reject that God. And then some are, are maybe a little bit hesitant, so they're a little bit more agnostic. This doesn't make sense, I don't like it. Um, the religious answer, the temptation for those of us who want to believe that God is good and powerful because the Bible affirms those things, but then what do we do with that anger? <laughs> well, if I can't hate God, the inevitable question is, who can I hate? And it could be me. You could hate yourself. It could be others. You could hate them. You could hate objective things in the world, the systems, or however it works. But there's something about this broken world that incites hatred in us because we can't make sense of things. And so uh, here's these uh, disciples trying to make sense of this issue. There's somebody born blind, and we don't know why. And so the question is, uh, was it the fault of the parents or the fault of the person? Faithful religious people. We're not going to entertain that it could be God. And those with a little bit more creativity think, well, maybe it's God's fault. And Jesus is saying, you're seeing everything wrong because you don't really know, and you're piecing together what you do know to draw conclusions about things you can't know. And so um, <clears throat> the mistake that the religious leaders make in quickly trying to handle the situation 
is they say they know the teachings of Moses, but they don't know anything about Jesus. And then in verse 24, they say, we know that this man is a sinner. So in this theme of what do we know and not know, they make a confident assertion, a conclusion. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay, it's not simply that he was blind, but now having been healed on the Sabbath, instead of joining our side against Jesus, he's simply being thankful. <laughs> uh, so there they are. We know that this man is a sinner. And theologically, we could say, well, of course he is because all of us are sinners. It's not that Jesus would disagree with that. They know he's a sinner based on consequences. He's blind. He's stubborn. They are now taking a strong position against Jesus, whose answer is to say, you're giving me an or question. Is it the man or his parents? I'm not, I'm not answering it as you frame it for me. I'm telling you something different is going on. And so uh, he then, then, they then in verse 34, to the man, you were born in utter sin, and they cast him out. So they take an action. Um, they're seeing what happened very differently than Jesus. And Jesus is trying to show us something of the work of God. And they don't know it, but they're shutting down the work of God. And they cast a man out that Jesus has just opened his eyes and welcomed in. And so that's the danger um, in, in not continuing to listen, not being open to the fact that we need to learn and that God is going to show us things. And so disciples are learners. Um, it's not that we shouldn't be confident about the things that we do know. It's not that we shouldn't be thinking. It's not that we shouldn't be applying reason and wisdom, uh, that we shouldn't be making clear conclusions. Um, all of these things are there, but there's, there's a certain caution that we need to have because of the, the bent in our hearts, which is to say, we'll look at a situation and however we declare that these are objective facts, there's something in um, the, the underlying sin in our hearts that will piece things together um, to, to condemn, to exclude, to humiliate, to punish in unfair ways. Jesus is coming saying, I'm, I want you to see things differently to end this awful problem of human violence and all of what we're doing. Jesus is showing us that we're stuck. So he's wanting us to have a better view of the world. And his healing seems to be indicating that he has come to open our eyes to see differently. And discipleship in that should play its way out in how we understand the world and what decisions we make. So here's the second thing that I think we're supposed to see in this passage. We're supposed to see the recreating work of the creator. So the recreating work of the creator. Uh, if you read John, John's gospel from the beginning, the theme of creation is there because one of the messages of John is that the creator is now finishing or bringing towards fulfillment and finishing the work that he began. Um, and by sending Jesus into the world to make things new, to, to, to give life again, to, to bring things back. And so you see that throughout John's gospel, but, but uh, you know, it begins with the same language of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the world. That's how the Bible opens. John opens in the beginning was the word. And then there's all these creational themes throughout, which which helps give a context for this puzzling healing. Why did Jesus heal this way? Um, there's numerous healings and, and that you see in the Bible and Jesus could have put out his hand and with a word of power said, I declare, I claim your healing. He could have said that. He could have laid hands on him. He could have had him walk around Jerusalem seven times. There's a number of things he could have done. He takes 
dust, spits on it, not CDC approved, but there it is, uh, makes mud or clay and puts it on the guy's eyes. Kind of a strange way of doing it. Um, and so I don't ultimately know why he did it that way. But if you're trying to make sense of it within the context of John's gospel, to recognize these creational themes that in Genesis 2, uh, the picture of, of God's creation and then the garden that he takes uh, humanity and places in, lots of water there. There are all these descriptions about streams and water flowing. And then there's the action of God who, from the dust of the earth, kind of a dry term, at least in English, but uh, from the dust of the earth, uh, molds humanity, a human being. And then, of course, in Genesis 3, the curse, uh, the reality of death is you return to the dust of the earth. Now there's something here uh, it, that's not right in creation. It hasn't been brought to fulfillment. And Jesus is, again, taking the dust of the earth and he's making mud and clay. And there's something that seems to have this context that's throughout the book of John. And so verse 6, he spits on the ground and makes mud with the saliva, and then he anoints the man's eyes with the mud and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so the themes in John about new birth and washing and regeneration and creation, somehow they seem to be part of the architecture of this story. You could also note uh, verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day. So this takes place on the Sabbath, partly because Jesus is challenging how the law is being interpreted and applied, but partly because the Sabbath was the climactic point of creation. You know, Genesis 1 ends with the sixth day and uh, the creation of humanity. We think that's the climactic moment. And then you turn the page and go into Genesis 2, and then God rests and declares the seventh day holy. So now we here we have the sixth sign. And um, there's a restoring of humanity. The God who says, let there be light, Genesis 1. Uh, previous chapter, John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's now bringing light to somebody that didn't have it. There, there seems to be this restoring of creation. And so even um, in John 5, the, the miracle that got Jesus in controversy, another healing on the Sabbath, um, in that context, his answer, why are you healing on the Sabbath? He says, my father has been working until now, and I am working. And so their concern was not simply that you broke the Sabbath, but by claiming that you can work on the Sabbath because God works on the Sabbath, they understood you're claiming a certain equality with God. And that offended them, rightly so, if he was not right in making the claim. But, but the Father is always working. So in Genesis 2, uh, God rests from his creation, except that God is the one who not only makes, but he sustains. And so what does it look like for God to rest? And it looks like for some of us, I advocate taking 24 hours of rest. It's in the Ten Commandments. Find a time to do it. Um, there are lots of things you're doing that you don't need to do. But no matter how much you want to rest, there are some cases where you won't. If you are an emergency room physician, people still have heart attacks and accidents uh, seven days a week. And therefore, there are some people... Um, because of mercy who don't get to work. I think in our context, probably the highest number um, of an obvious thing is parents of young children. I remember when my kids were young, wanting a day of rest and uh, deciding I wasn't gonna do all sorts of work, but you still need to change diapers and you still need to clean messes off of uh, rugs and you still need to uh, answer the cries. And I often thought, 
I'd rather be studying the Bible and preparing a sermon. Put, put, put me to work. Uh, this is not restful. Um, but there it is. You know, if you're a parent, um, rest looks a little different. And in order to care for others, you don't get that rest. God is always working. So there's a true rest in the pattern that God has given us. But Jesus comes and he heals on the Sabbath. And when they're wanting to argue about whether or not technically they're right, he's right in how he's interpreting the law, he steps back almost to say, where he says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's talking about the Sabbath being a gift. But he's also saying that he's the one who made the Sabbath. And therefore, um, if he chooses to show his glory by restoring on the Sabbath, um, recognize that since the beginning of the world, God has always been working. So don't condemn Jesus for continuing the work of God. Um, so these creation themes, and then the last thing I'll point out in verse 32, the response, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And that allusion to the beginning of the world, Jesus here is doing something new. Um, which is to say that, that um, you know, there are times that people are sick and they're healed, but um, God alone creates out of nothing. And here's sight that was never there. It's not that he lost his sight and Jesus restored it. That's a major theme in the Bible. Um, but actually, he gives sight where it wasn't there. Who can do that? They're recognizing nobody's ever done this. Not Moses, not Joshua, not Elijah, not Elisha, not the great figures who have done remarkable things. Nobody's done this. And so they're struck to say something happened we can't make sense of. And, and John presents it to us, bringing us back to the beginning. Think of the whole of history. Who is able to make from nothing? Who is able to call light into being? Who is able to give life? Um, that's what we're being presented with. And so we're invited to open our eyes to see that God the one who created is now starting to make things new. He's starting to come into our broken world and fix things. The arrival of Jesus marks something that should cause us to rejoice, not something to cause us to argue about what we know and don't know. And so we're meant to see here something of the recreative power. And so Jesus in uh, verses four and five says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What Jesus is saying is I'm coming as the light of the world, but people still can't see it, not because there's anything wrong with me or my message, but there's something spiritually wrong that we don't have the equipment to discern. The sign is showing us that Jesus is coming to show us that light, but there's an ominous sentence when he says night is coming. Um, while I'm in the world, the light is there. Well, when he ascends to heaven, he sends the spirit. So there's a light pointing us towards Jesus. Most scholars think that Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. There is a, a time of darkness coming. Night is coming and no one will be able to work when they hand me over because they're blind and because of darkness. Jesus is alluding to that. But to this man, while that's happening, while people are not able to see it, there's one person, so verse 37 in his dialogue with the man he healed, the man, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Well, who is that? Good question. Jesus says, verse 37, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. So that seeing and speaking, now all of a sudden the, the voice of the creator uh, has opened his eyes. And so uh, in this story, Jesus is showing grace that this guy is seeing something of the power of the creator at work, unexpected, remarkably in his life. And John is writing this to say, do you realize this is the nature of God? He wants to 
to renew this world and he wants to invite you to be part of it and you can't see it unless he does a powerful work of grace in your life. And so are we willing to listen? Are we willing to draw nearer? Um, or are we gonna insist that we know better than God? So there's this recreating work we're meant to see. Now here's the third and last thing. What are we supposed to see in this passage? Well, we're supposed to see God working in the world. And this is such a hard thing. Clearly where there's spiritual blindness, we can't see God, it doesn't make sense. But, but any of us that would say, well, well, God has opened our eyes. We, 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 we sense that spiritual working. He's, he's taught us from the scriptures. We still get stuck going into the world and saying, I'm facing things that I don't understand. And God, where are you? And how does this make sense? And what do I do? All of those questions are always there, but discipleship is once you start to see um, that God is the one to come to, that you go in prayer, that you uh, seek to put on the various patterns that, that are set for us, that you listen to the ways of God and try to do them, it changes how we perceive and understand what choices we make, but it's a struggle. We don't see God working in the world. John gives us this story to say, I want you who weren't there, who weren't even born at that time, to be able to see um, by hearing this story, something that God did, that if you grasp it, it, it could actually change the way that you view things. And so, so going back to this reframing, this discipling that Jesus does in verses three and four, he says uh, to their question, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus's answer is not ultimately the why, the causality question. He's not answering that question because it's not always the most important question. He's not saying this happened for a reason. He's saying, but here's how you know why God is, is doing this because God has appointed this person uh, to receive his grace in such a powerful way that it's gonna show everyone who needs grace where to get it. And so he says, this is, because the works of God might be displayed. Um, it's not an explanation for why there's evil and suffering in the world. Jesus is not answering that question. He's coming in and saying, until you can answer it, don't wait for an answer. But uh, don't, don't say, I'm gonna sit here and try to figure out why, unless that's your job if you're a philosopher. Think about why, write a book about it. But the rest of us, instead of waiting till we get why, have to grapple with the question, well, what am I supposed to do? So this is not a good situation. So am I gonna figure out why so I could blame someone, so I could clear my conscience, or am I gonna bring something into this where I'm part of the solution? And am I looking for what God is doing? And am I looking to join with God in his work? So it's actually a really important lesson because the conclusion the disciples have is how human beings think and it's, different systems, it's karma in one religion, it's just cause and effect, or it's random meaninglessness in some, but, but even for Christians, we can't help but look at somebody suffering and think there's a cause there that creates a category of deserving. And, and here's the thing is sometimes that happens. Sometimes, you know, the reason somebody's in prison is because they committed a crime. There's cause and effect. Suffering is not always random, meaningless, and unexplainable. But it slows us down to say, be careful thinking you know things whenever you're with somebody who's suffering or disadvantaged. Be very careful trying to find the fault. Is it God? Is it you? Is it me? And Jesus is saying a, a better thing until you know why. So, so it's good to find out why if you're going to be part of the solving the problem. But it's not good to know about why if you're just looking for somebody to hate.
And so better is to say, well, I don't know why. What is the work of God that I can do? Because God is calling us to be doing this kind of work. And so it's interesting that here's a guy who was sort of excluded from society because of his condition. His eyes are open, and then he's definitively cast out for his not being able to explain what happened. And so in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I think this is a picture of, of, of on a deeper level of what's going on, what happens when blind people create societies and, and manage one another. Um, in our ignorance, we, we turn against one another, we cast each other out. John is showing Jesus who goes and finds those who have been cast out, and he invites them to believe. And then he wants to show them so that by believing they could have life. And one of the things we're meant to see in the story is there's good intentioned people, the disciples who are learners, there are people that are well-intentioned but a bit afraid, the, the parents, there are people that maybe somewhere there's a good intention but they're just so stuck that they're ready to do what's wrong. And then there's Jesus who's coming to all of them and saying, all of you are here. <laughs> I've come to find you, to show the work of God, to display grace. And so will you see it? Will you look? Will you take some time? Um, and we know that uh, in this story, ultimately, Jesus is the one who is going to be cast out. Jesus is the one who comes to announce light and that people can see, and he is the one who will go to the cross to a time of darkness. And what we have in this story is, is uh, the brokenness of the world is so complicated that none of us can figure out how to fix it. But the wisdom of God somehow begins the repair by not explaining how to do it, but by showing us that he did it sacrificially. He was the one that would ultimately bear the burden. So uh, he takes people from the dust, but the, the curse of creation is that we return to the dust. Jesus comes and he bears the curse. And then he takes mud from the ground and he says, now recreation is happening. I'm going to apply this to living beings and renew them, bring life back to them. And so this man does not understand what just happened to him, but he's invited to believe in Jesus. And at this point, he can't explain where Jesus is from, how Jesus healed, but he would certainly know that Jesus, who not only gave him sight, but came and found him uh, to invite him to walk with him, that there's something there worth sticking with. And so in verse 25, he says, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. He doesn't have the explanation for why he had those years of suffering. He doesn't have the explanation for what happened. He doesn't know all of these things, but the Pharisees know he's a sinner. The parents know they're his son. He says, I know that I was blind, and now I can see. In other words, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but the one who healed me, the one who shined light, the one who found me, I will keep watching. I will keep looking, and I will keep learning. I had read a story this week in one of the commentaries um, that during one of the revivals, so they mentioned the Wesleyan revival. I don't know if it was under John Wesley. But there was a guy who became a Christian, um, and apparently he was, he was a drunk. He was impacting his family, and his life was transformed um, through believing in the good news of Jesus. Uh, his life is transformed, and then he gets a job, goes back to, back to the workplace. But people would poke fun at him a bit because he was sort of a fervent Christian. And so one of his coworkers asked him, do you believe, do you actually believe Jesus turned water into wine? 
And apparently his response is, I don't know if Jesus turned water into wine. I was not there. But in my household, he turned beer into furniture. And so what he's saying is, I can't explain everything on God's behalf, but my life and my household was a wreck. And God showed me grace and kindness. And I don't know what happened, but it changed my life. And now my family is doing well, and you're making fun of me at work. Let's be clear. <laughs> I'm at work. So keep making fun of me. Um, I'm just going to keep at it. And there's something here where, where God has an invitation to say, you don't have to understand everything. And it's not that you shouldn't strive to learn and to grow. But we are not God. We can't know all things. But what we can know is that God is a God of grace. God is a God who brings light into darkness. God is a God who heals. God is a God who finds those who are lost, those who are cast out, those whom the world has decided you don't belong. And it's people who realize, wait a second, God is that different, that though it might be true that I'm a sinner, as I try to figure out what that means, that God forgives me, that there's real grace, that, that he will first love me and then have a conversation with me about what needs to change. Um, when people see that, it opens their eyes to a reality that inevitably reframes all of reality. You can't go back into the world realizing, boy, I really struggled thinking I was the worst. And it's not that I found out that I was wrong. I still don't understand, maybe I am the worst, but I found out that God loves me anyway so much that he suffered on my behalf and he's reforming, he's redeeming, he's renewing me. And so um, the change now on how you look at other people, everyone's a sinner. Is your first instinct to hate and exclude them? Not the disciple. The first instinct is not to explain why they're suffering. The first instinct is to love them as God has loved us. And when you're living in the world that way, then, you are part of the solution where Jesus says, we must be doing the work of God. What a, a strange thing in verse four. He doesn't say, I must be doing the work of God, but there's a we. I have come to do what you cannot. You cannot heal the blind. You cannot raise the dead. You cannot renew the spirit. I will do those things. But you can, in following me, look for the work of God in the world and try to do it. And so the church is meant to be sent out as those who have been reframed. Um, you know, as Christians, when we talk about what is it we're supposed to go out to do without the reframing, for some of us, there's either the naive, we can go and fix the world instantly, and that doesn't last long, or there's the very discouraging, oh no, more things for me to do, more hard work, more exhaustion, more potential for failure. It's that grace that reframes things to say, it's not that God needed you to join his company. It's that God is doing a work in the world that every human should be part of. And because we're lost and confused, we're working against it. We're destroying things. He comes to show grace. He comes to show light. And then he says, now follow me and go back into the world. And yes, at times it'd be hard. Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's not always fun and easy. But there's something deeply satisfying about looking at the world and saying, I don't need to be hopeless, nor do I need to feel good about myself by hating everybody else or whatever else we come up with, but Jesus reframes things to say, you can see the grace and light of God and you can walk in it and then you could go back into the world and be a witness in some way to the grace and light of God. So this week, try to see things differently. Where is God working? What is God showing you? What about how God would have you choose is an opportunity for you, even if it feels costly, to do what will show grace, would be consistent with having your eyes open to a new way. Uh, try it out this week and pray that God would help you 
and uh, bless whatever it is you choose to do. Let me pray. Our Father, we gather here. Um, we still don't see. We still don't understand. We need ongoing light. We need um, a clarity of your voice. We need that spiritual renewing work. We thank you, God, that you're a God who finds the outcast, who calls back the wandering, who uh, shows grace and favor and patience. So, Lord, um, this week and in these upcoming weeks, we pray for renewal in our hearts and minds. We pray that we would start to see through the eyes of grace that your light would help us to understand ourselves and our world and the challenges, whatever challenges we're facing. And I do pray and we pray for anyone here who is overwhelmed and discouraged that you would shine some light um, to help them see the next faithful step so that uh, none of us would would go through this week fearing that your work uh, does not apply to us, but help us to um, receive your grace and to walk with you as we face whatever challenges are before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.